Welcome to episode 24, Facilitating Increased Self-Compassion with Your Male Clients by Dr. Mark Stevens, Licensed Clinical Psychologist. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello out there. Uh, My name is Dr. Mark Stevens, and I'm really, really pleased to be able to offer what I hope is uh, some interesting, useful information about men and self-compassion, a journey for them to discover oneself and being more open to others. It's really talking about how do we develop uh, a practice around self-compassion. Well, a little bit about myself. Um, first of all, let me say that I'm working on this. I continue to work on this. It's a life journey to uh, practice and develop what I see as really important skills around self-compassion. And I do believe that um, the practice of developing self-compassion is a little bit more challenging for guys and I'll talk more about that. Uh, My background, um, I'm a professor at Cal State University Northridge in their MFT program. Um, Before that, I was the Counseling Center Director at Cal State Northridge and Training Director of the APA-approved internship program at at USC. Um, Most important, I think, is something about my journey into talking about men's issues. How did I get there? Well, I started graduate school in the middle 70s, and feminism was really, really big. Uh, And it's still big, but it was just gigantic. Was there anything around men's issues, men's studies? Very, very little. The women were encouraging us, guys, you know, take care of yourself. Um, What are you doing to develop your understanding of who you are as a man. And I was fortunate enough to meet some other guys and do some reading um, that helped really start an incredible journey on discovering um, how masculinity and my sort of lessons around socialization and being a man has influenced who I am. Uh, I joined a men's group. Um, I started reading uh, starting to talk with other men. And it, and it was just enlightening to be able to go into an area that I was sort of frightened of. I knew it was there. Um, and so discovering who I am has been a journey uh, through the lens of being a male. And so I bring to this talk, uh, to this podcast, lots of different experiences. I've been running men's groups for um, decades uh, I teach workshops uh, for men. I don't even really think it's more teaching. It's sort of facilitating workshops on men's issues, a variety of men's issues at Esalen in Big Sur. And in fact, this last one that uh, I did with my colleague, Matt uh, Engler Carlson, we did it on men and self-compassion. And I'm going to share with you a little bit more about what that workshop was about, the reactions that we had. Um let me, let me start out with a context, a big context here. Uh, 
Can we ever have enough self-compassion? Can we ever have enough compassion in the world? And I believe I'm getting on my, um, what do they call it, on my, my pulpit right now to say I think now more than ever we need a world that has more compassion and more self-compassion for everybody. The world feels tight right now. It feels like there's winners and there's losers. It feels like there's a type of aggressiveness that goes on. It feels like there's a type of rushing that's going on in the world. Well, to practice self-compassion means you need to slow down. You need to get out of that paradigm of someone being right and someone being wrong. And for yourself, that it's something different about, oh, I'm right or I'm wrong. It's much more nuanced than that. I truly believe that increasing self-compassion leads to increased capacity for compassion. And we need that as therapists. How do we develop our practice of compassion? Some people would use the word empathy. That could, that's okay as well. But how do we develop a deeper, greater capacity for compassion? And I believe that we need to go inside ourselves and look at how are we becoming more self-compassionate because we can be awfully critical. Interesting research suggests that when you are in a state of self-compassion and compassion, your blood pressure goes down, you feel more relaxed, there's more joy, your face starts to relax, you see the world differently, you see people differently, you experience the humanness, the humanity of other people when you're in a state of feeling compassion. So what is self-compassion is not this. Let me just share with you what it's not because maybe right now you're starting to wonder, you know, well, what, what does he mean by self-compassion? Let me start with the not and then I'll share with you my definition of self-compassion. Self-compassion is not about making excuses for yourself. It's not about not taking responsibility for your mistakes. That's not what it, it's not trying to get us off the hook. What is self-compassion then? I believe self-compassion is a nuanced narrative about one's critical voice, one's narratives about reactions and actions. Let me say that again. We all have critical voices. What do we do with those critical voices? Can we nuance them in a way or are we going to stay with a fixed narrative about some kind of attribution to our behavior, to our reaction? And I believe in that process of practicing self-compassion, we learn how to slow down. We learn how to get to know ourselves better. We get to know the shades of who we are and not just sort of these... Um, defined uh, uh, frames. We get to know the, the nuances and the shades. And that is a process of self-discovery. And that discovery um, 
starts with us as therapists. So I want to share a little bit about what we can do as therapists. I'm then going to talk about specifically about men uh, and self-compassion uh, and working with men in self-compassion. And I'm going to share a case example or two, depending on how much time that we have. How can we expect our clients to go really as far as we would hope they would go unless we've gone that far? So I ask you some of these questions. How do you practice self-compassion? What is your paradigm for doing so? What are your personal experiences? What are your speed bumps and resistance to practicing self-compassion? And then a larger question, do you have a practice of self-compassion? Is it in your vocabulary? Do you, maybe you use some other words that have the same meaning, but what, what is that process for you? And that's really important. I want to share with you a, um, a personal story about self-compassion because I believe it's in these sort of, they can be really big events that um, necessitate some practice of self-compassion, but they can also be in these small events that happen. And um, I think there's a capacity to understand ourselves through a self-compassionate lens on a daily, on a daily basis. So here's one. It's not all that revealing, but it will reveal a little bit about myself. So I'm standing in line at Starbucks, and I'm uh, ready to order some, uh, some, some coffee. Uh, I was on a bike ride and usually have a, uh, a ritual of going with some friends, and we sort of know whose turn it is to buy coffee. And my friend was outside, and I'm ready to buy some coffee. And I've got my phone, and that's all that I have. And my um, app to Starbucks was not working. I had already ordered the coffee. They had already started to make it. And I go, oh, I can't get my app working. I'm trying passwords and all of that kind of stuff. And it's just not working. And I said, let me go. Hold on one second. I'm going to go and run out and get some money from my friend. I'm a little bit embarrassed, but my friend and I have a very good relationship. and We do this all the time. But there was a person that was standing right behind me. And she said, um, his drinks are on me. I just feel like doing a good deed today. And I got embarrassed. Like I, I just, I can feel myself getting a little squirrely. Um, and I look at this person and I go, wow, what, what, what? And I'm like, I don't feel really grounded. I don't feel like I was really gracious with this person because there was something that was coming up for me that was embarrassment, a little bit of shame. I'm not supposed to, like, I should have had money on me. I should have had a backup. Um, so I I did accept this person's offer and we had a nice little chat and I said, well, I'm going to pass it on. And she goes, good, That's that's great. But I wanted to kind of think about my reaction um, to this person. And I was thinking about why did I have such a difficult time 
being gracious because I was kind of beating myself up a little bit about my reaction. And I realized that some of this goes into my male training. One is I got trained to be a much better giver than receiver. And I also got trained to like always be prepared as a guy. Don't ever not be prepared. If you're not prepared, like there's something wrong with you. And so I was thinking about, um, you know, what it meant to be vulnerable in that position and realizing how my training as a male didn't really teach me how to be gracious in that situation, at least for me, because it was something about the guilt that I was experiencing, the embarrassment that I was experiencing. But I realized that I was just really frightened of being vulnerable. And that's been sort of a lifelong journey. And many guys talk with me about the fear of being vulnerable. So when I um, realized where this was sort of coming from, my chest opened up, my, my heart opened up. I felt such a gigantic state of relief. I was kind of proud of myself too. And I think when you work on a practice of self-compassion and you see where you can go with yourself, it's like, wow, I just didn't stick with that feeling of embarrassment and shame. I allowed myself to dig just a little bit deeper to try to understand what that was all about. Now, that's one of many stories that I can share with you. And I believe that most of us, if not all of us, have many stories like this on a daily basis. But we have to slow down and listen to our narrative and listen to our critical voice in order to create this nuanced dialogue with ourselves about where is this coming from. I went outside and I you know, this is a guy that I know very well and I um, I feel very comfortable with him. And I shared it with him. There was a little bit of embarrassment that I was going to share with him about my my vulnerability. And it was in that sharing that really, um, it, it even added a new level of, wow, this is okay. I don't even need to feel shame about my shame. And that kind of freed me up again uh, in ways that felt really good. So that's my personal story. Um, and, I, and I wonder, um, what is your journey of discovering and practicing self-compassion? Do you have a paradigm? Are there stories and experiences which have not been examined? And I'm sure there are. Um, that have a critical judgmental voice or tone to them? Are there personal stories and experiences that you have tried to build a more compassionate narrative, but you're having difficulty doing so? Are there untold stories of shame and embarrassment that reside inside of you? What prevents you from sharing them with another person you trust or even your own therapist? So this is what I'm encouraging. Um, if you're driving, please don't take notes. You can come back to this um, later on. 
I would encourage you to choose a story or experience you have a self-critical narrative about. How can you get to a place where you can have a more compassionate, have more compassion for your reactions? Watch yourself. Go as deep as you can to find the self-compassion. If you're comfortable, choose a person you trust and share your process. Get some feedback. And what's really critical is that you feel the process. You experience the process before you ask your clients to do the same. Well, thank you for letting me be on my pulpit for a little bit and kind of lecturing. This is not a, a should kind of talk. It's I Hopefully you can hear that it's sort of my experience, and I'll share a little bit more about my experiences with my clients and how for many of them their lives have changed as we've worked on a, a practice around self-compassion. Um, so I'm looking for my talking points. So let's generally talk about men and self-compassion. I don't think that many men think about self-compassion in their life. We might when we get older, but as we grow up, I it's not part of our vocabulary. I don't remember anybody saying to me, oh, you need to be more compassionate for yourself. Or you need to be more compassionate for others too. It just, as guys, we didn't grow up thinking, oh, we're going to be nurturing, we're going to be compassionate, we're going to have a bunch of empathy. We felt it. We knew it was there, but it wasn't part of what we got trained to use in our vocabulary. I can never think of a time when I had a friend when I'm, you know, 15, 16 years old and they're going through their first breakup and I'm saying, I, I, I feel for you. I've got a lot of compassion for you. It wasn't a word that we would use. In fact, it was a word that you may even gotten made fun of because it was an intimate kind of word. When I ask my male clients what do they think self-compassion means, they're perplexed. They, they, they often, they, they said, nobody's ever asked me that before. So in many ways, self-compassion is antithetical to the way many males are socialized in our culture. We're taught, don't complain. No pain, no gain. Don't be too soft. Don't let yourself off the hook. Be tough. Take responsibility, etc., Self-compassion sounds like it's different than that. But in many ways, self-compassion can be a really important part of our male socialization. So learning how to practice and be more self-compassionate has tremendous value to men's lives. Their mental and physical health, as I mentioned, relationships with others, self-compassion, 
can reduce overt and covert levels of stress. And as I've said before, it can increase capacity for empathy with others. Now, when I talk later about um, a, a case example involving a, a couple, this is one story that really shines a light on how self-compassion um, creates greater compassion. In the men's group that I run, I've been running for 10 years now, um, we're, we're developing a practice of, of self-compassion so that our members' relationships with others can improve. Because they will improve when you have more empathy and more compassion and are less judgmental and less yes, right and wrong. You know, self-compassion allows men to become more nuanced and reflective in the context of their narratives about their experiences, behaviors, and attitudes. Typically, these experiences, behaviors, and attitudes, as I shared with my example, involve feelings of shame, embarrassment, failure, and disappointment. Men carry these feelings of shame, failure, embarrassment, and disappointment often with a fixed and critical narrative often with a fixed and critical narrative. It doesn't go examined because it's kept silent. Oftentimes men are embarrassed to share their reactions. It's kept to oneself. And these experiences that are kept to oneself, it's hard to examine. It's hard to create a different narrative unless you examine the shame and this embarrassment. But it's not cool for guys to share. You know, what I find is when I ask men about these critical voices surrounding experiences such as losing money, losing a job, losing a relationship, their explanation is oftentimes quite critical. I mean, sometimes they're blaming. Sometimes it's mixed with blaming and blaming others and self-blaming. But more often than not, they say things like, I'm lazy, I'm stupid, I have no self-control, I'm an a-hole, I'm a jerk, I'm a fool. Those are not kind words. They're also words that tend to stop the conversation. And I think oftentimes the guys want to stop the conversation by saying the explanation is, well, you know, what led you to do something like this? What was your process? Might be the question for my client. And their response is, I'm just stupid. Well, if we stop at that, we've, we've cheated them. We've cheated them of an understanding that goes way beyond a very critical voice of, I am stupid. And almost always, it's not always, the motivation or what led them to the behavior that they feel shamed about is not because they're stupid. It's because there's parts of their life that have gone unexamined. And so we try to get to that. You know, helping our male clients expand and nuance the attributions they're making about themselves 
in the context of shameful, embarrassing, and disappointing experiences is really um, at the core of this journey for men to discover and feel more self-compassion. So, you know, let us make a transition right now. I've sort of set the, um, the context about self-compassion, um, why is it so important, why guys might have a difficult time engaging uh, in the practice of, of self-compassion. It takes time. It's nothing that you want to do with your clients on the first session or the second session. Um, but it does take time, and there are some moments where it's um, you can kind of tell when the right time is for some kind of intervention around self-compassion. So let me um, share a couple stories about um, working with man, a few conceptual ideas about man and, and masculinity. Um, one of the stories that I'd like to share before I talk about some conceptual ideas is that of working with men is my experience of, of running a, a, a workshop, facilitating a workshop at, at Esalen. For those of you out there that have never been to Esalen, it's in Big Sur. It's one of the <laughs> most gorgeous places on this earth. And you go there and there's lots of, of types of um, self grow self-actualization it goes way back into the 60s with fritz pearls and other um, humanistic and self-actualizing um, therapists and encounter groups it's it's really a, a terrific place so my buddy and i uh, matt ingle carson every year we've been doing different kinds of of workshops men and friendships um uh men as fathers, men and money. And this year, we, this past year, we decided to do a, a workshop on, on men and self-compassion. And it was, we, we didn't really know what to expect. We, we, Esalen, we don't go in there with the lecture, but it's really kind of facilitation. The guys tend to be pretty open um, coming in because it is Esalen. And what we found in this group the very first night, um, as guys shared what their expectations were of the evening, they said a couple things that were that that have stuck with me. One is never talked about this before. When we ended the evening and people were talking about why this workshop might be important for them. <clears throat> excuse me, they felt a gigantic sense of, of connection with the other men. They were excited. They were looking forward to the workshop. They were scared. And throughout the, the, the weekend that we had with them, these guys had stories that were stories around their critical voice, it was sometimes around their children, sometimes around their relationships, sometimes around their childhood, things that they haven't been able to sort of completely um, have a nuanced narrative about. They've, they've been critical. They have beat themselves over. They beat themselves up about it. 
and they haven't shared with others. And in this weekend and with this group of men, one by one, they started to share their stories and got an enormous amount of support. And behind every critical story, whether it was why they didn't see their children for four years, um, why this investment went wrong and they, they lost a lot of money. As they unpacked those stories, they were able to find in their, in those stories, some sense of kindness for themselves about how they got themselves into this position. And they tried to, to change that narrative of, I'm a fool, I'm stupid, I'm an awful person, I'm a terrible human being. And it became much more nuanced. And they did that, they were, it, those stories were witnessed by other men. And it was the witnessing by other men that was just really absolutely terrific. Let me move on because I can end up talking about Esalen for the, this, this whole podcast. And I don't get any money, by the way, for, uh, uh, Esalen. I'm not an employee there, but it, for, as a therapist, it's one of the most magical places that you can go in and experience a, a workshop or if you happen to be able to be fortunate enough to do a workshop, um, like I've been doing for the last 10 years. So working with guys working with men. I'm going to say some things that are, generally speaking, it's not with all men. We know that there's a diversity of men from uh, around ethnicity, sexual orientation, SES, where you're born, how old you are, religion, a variety of different ways that all men are unique in, in, in many ways. But there are some generalities that I'd like to share. It's not with all men again. Men can be rather hard on themselves. They're not always aware of how pervasive and loud their critical voice is. They're not always paying attention to it, but it's in there. It's in their body. It's in their gut. It's almost like they've gotten used to this harsh inner voice. And what I found to be examples of some of the inner critical voices of shame, disappointments, embarrassments, and regrets of my male clients are things like this. I don't care of, I don't take care of my health. I don't prioritize my family enough. I've not been a good enough son. I should have gone further in school. I sometimes seek revenge. I should not have procrastinated on this. I waste my money on this. I should have been able to fill in the blank. I wasted years on drugs and alcohol. I let people run over me. I'm afraid to ask for what I want. I lose my temper. And as said before, the usual explanation for these behaviors are, I'm either stupid, lazy, weak, selfish, an a-hole, etc., and because men are not really good, as I've said before, at sharing their inner worlds, these narratives, these stories, they go unexamined. They stay, um, they stay secretive. I'm going to go off talk, topic just a little bit because I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this last thing that I said about I lose my temper. 
And I want to share with you um, a quick story about the narrative of, of working with guys who lose their temper. Um, and when I mean lose their temper, it could be they, um, they yell too quickly. They get critical of the other too quickly. Um, they can feel their body get tense and their, their reactions are, are, are sometimes loud. They're angry. They're judgmental. And their narrative, when you ask, well, how do you understand, um, you losing your temper? What they end up saying to me is, I just can't control my anger. I just don't know how to control my anger. And so I might ask them, well, let's, that, that might be part of the narrative about controlling your anger or um, communicating a little bit differently. But let's try to, to understand a different voice that might be going on when you lose your temper. What else is going on for you? And sometimes say, I don't know what you mean. So I might have to put some words into my client's mouth and say, I bet you're really sort of, you, you care a lot about whatever subject was being discussed. My guess is you have a lot of passion for it. My guess is there was some worry that was involved that led you to react in such a, a harsh, critical type of way. And they look at me and they they open up their eyes and they say, wow, I never thought about it before. And so that's the start a little bit of this journey with guys. And this is one example of, of how you can kind of look at their critical voice and help them try to nuance it. But you're going to have to help them because I don't think it's going to come automatic for them to be thinking about their passion and how much they care about something or how much they worry about something. They're focused in on what probably was told to them from an early age, maybe even a child. Oh, you don't know how to control your temper. You're bad. How about if we talk a little bit now about um, strategies for working with men on their journey to to utilize self-compassion. A couple different strategies. Um, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot more and I'm probably not going to remember all the different strategies that I have used over time. Um, but let me start to share uh, a little bit of these strategies um, with you. And then I think I'm going to move into a, uh, a case example. Um, as well. So some strategies. And the first strategy that isn't really a strategy, but it's a condition for this kind of work to happen is, how do you feel about your male client? Do you trust them? Do you have rapport with them? Do they know that you care about them? Do you know that you see them more than just their some of the behaviors that might have brought them in to therapy because we know that oftentimes men aren't self-referred 
but they are brought in, um, sometimes even kicked in or, um, so as you know, or may know that men are looking at their therapist and they're wondering, what do you think about me? Their first reaction oftentimes is going to be, I'm kind of shameful of this stuff. Is this person going to be judgmental? Again, coming back to self-compassion, if they're feeling predominantly judgmental about their behaviors, they're going to project that on to others in terms of them thinking that others will, will think the same way about them. So how are you building rapport with your client? How do they know that you see them as a full human being, that you care about them? Are you in a fight with them? Are you in a power struggle with them? Are you trying to convince them of something? Those are not the types of of therapeutic conditions that are going to help you move into this path of helping your clients develop a a strategy for self-compassion. So what you want to really feel and get there, and if you have to talk with a supervisor, if you're having some transference issues, counter-transference issues, if you're not at a place where you really respect and, and care for your client, you probably don't want to get into this kind of work with them. The next strategy is that you want to turn your radar screen to listening for and inquiring about their critical um, inner voice narratives. And they have them. Um, they, they have them. Um, they have lots of them. And they will tell them to you. But sometimes they're telling them to you in a sort of a roundabout way that you want to really listen and hear for some of these narratives. Had a client say to me um, when I when I asked them about you know what do you think um, has interfered with you moving forward on your plan um, this business plan that you had. Uh, his response was, I'm just lazy. He's been thinking about being lazy for a really long time. It's an internal narrative that perhaps we're, I did find out later, that this is what his parents described him as. This is what some teachers described him as. And so he carried around this critical voice for 30 plus years that he's a lazy person. So when I hear something like that, I get really curious. I don't say to them, of course, oh, that's not about being lazy. Or I don't say to them, oh, you shouldn't think about yourself that way. Or, oh, that's you're being really hard on yourself. No, I want to get curious with them. So the fir- one of the first questions I ask them when you hear this critical voice is, tell me more. I'd, I'd really like to understand and learn about how you develop this perception that you are a lazy person. Let's just spend some time. There's no right or wrong answer here. I want to hear 
how you develop that internal narrative. Because I do believe, and I might say this to the client very shortly, is that there's a lot more to this story than you being lazy. And part of the work that we do here is to try to hear more of the story. So going with the laziness, um, you know, we, we, we might come to discover and I might be able to sort of reframe this person's laziness um, as it sounds to me that for a very long period of time, you've avoided things because of the anxiety that you feel when you try to engage in this. His eyes opened up again. And he says, Oh, I've never thought about it that way. Yes, I avoid anxiety. And so that was one of these sort of aha moments where we can change, help to change his, his narrative around being lazy and then thinking about, well, let's look at feeling anxious and be able to nuance that and work with that. Another strategy is, and I mentioned this about the, the, the Esalen workshop, but also for those of you that, that run a men's group or think it's a good idea to get one of your male clients into a men's group, The guys that I have in, in, in the men's group that I, that I co-facilitate, um, with Dr. Jan Oren is, um, guys feel an enormous amount of relief and a type of connection with other men as they share these stories, these stories, these critical voices. And oftentimes the guys, after Ken and I have been doing a little bit of, of modeling. Um, they start to help them unpack that critical voice. They become the therapists in the room. And that becomes uh, incredibly powerful. I want to share with you one particular strategy that I found um, really powerful in working with my male clients. At some point, I have them write a love letter to themselves. Yep, I have them write a love letter to themselves. When we discuss it and we talk about what's the benefits of it, what might they learn, their face is often kind of like, what did you just ask me to do? Really? And they're willing to do it. We have a, a by that time, we've had enough of a, a rapport. They trust me. Um, and I, I give them some um, kind of tips of around treat this like a, for some of the guys that may have journaled, but treat this like a journal. 
Watch your filters. Write down everything that's going through your mind about who you are, what you appreciate about yourself, what you've accomplished in your life, what you've been through. You have some stories of resiliency. You have some heroic stories. You have some stories of going over and beyond. And this is part of, of, of who you are as much as the parts of you that you don't feel as accomplished. And I have my clients um, write the letter. And um, oftentimes, uh, while not always the case, some of them want me to, to, to read it. Um, but oftentimes I ask them to, to read it out loud. And I work with them while they're reading out loud helping them slow down, um, helping them feel the, the words, not just reading it, but really feel the words. It's a little bit embarrassing for them because as guys, we're not supposed to brag like that. We're not supposed to share with another guy why we love ourselves. Are you kidding me? The session slows down. Sometimes I work with the client to breathe. Sometimes I work with the client to say, I'd like for you to say that again, what you just said, and feel the words that you're saying. There's oftentimes tears that are accompanied with this love letter. I don't have a lot of guys that ask me for a hug after a session, but the times that I we have introduced the love letter, they've asked me for a hug. Afterwards, they f- they're feeling an awful lot. And then we ask them, then I ask them, do you want to share this with anybody else? And when they're partnered, they say, boy, what would it be like to share with my partner this? And they contemplate it. Some choose to, some choose not to. What would it be like to share this with the parent? What would it be like to share it with the sibling? What would it be like to, to, to share it with your child? I believe that as we put out into the world, I'm getting back onto my pulpit about social justice and the need for, I love the Beatles and all you need is love. Um, it was one of my favorite songs and still is, is that as you put out your narrative of how you love yourself, I believe you can have a greater capacity to love others. So this has been a really important um, strategy um, that I've used at the right time with my male clients. All right. I've shared a little bit about different cases here. Um, let me share uh, something with you about a, a, um, a client that I, that I worked with. Um, his name is, um, well, this isn't his name, but, um, and I'm a little bit frightened of using his real name. I just need to let you know that. So I'm trying to find some self-compassion. You know, why would I not use his real name? I know him. I'm having a very difficult time using his fake name that I gave him. So I'm trying to find some compassion for my anxiety. I think my anxiety is, is, uh, uh, is understandable. 
I want to protect his confidentiality. So I'm just doing a little self-talk as I'm sharing with you my, my process. So William, uh, self-made man, educated, dedicated father, makes a good living, smart, generous. He was raised by a, a, a single mom, um, a hardworking mom, um, oldest child, um, needed to raise his younger siblings in, in essence. Um, has done a, an amazing job in his life to be able to take care of a lot of people, um, uh, siblings, parents. His wife, um, what brought him into to, to therapy is that his wife reports that he, he does not listen well, makes decisions too quickly without her consultation is insensitive to her needs, and she's kind of fed up with him. Uh, according to my client, she says William is, in his own words, and in his own world, excuse me, and, and does not know how to be emotionally available. She's contemplating divorce. He's distraught, and he's confused. He really loves her. He cares about her. He doesn't want to lose her. But he also had a very limited narrative about his reactions to his wife's complaints. He had a limited narrative about his reactions. So first we had to sort of understand what his reactions were because he was pretty confused because I think as you work with guys and you get to understand what their reactions there's always an anchor to something in their childhood there's there's some kind of of compassion understanding about why he may be reacting the way that he was so he as we started to talk he said he felt like he's a bad boy, was not capable of soothing and meeting his wife's needs. He was trying, and he just could not get it. He just did not know what he can do. He was incredibly ashamed that his wife did not experience him as a good enough husband. He found himself shutting down, retreating, and did not how and did not know how to share his inner world with his wife, except to say he was sorry and would try harder. But he was lost. He didn't. He had this narrative as like, I'm just, I'm just not a good enough husband. He also didn't understand some of the behaviors, where they were coming from, his intentions that were really upsetting his wife. He believed his, he believed when his wife said he's just not trying hard enough. Well, William had a story to share with his wife about her complaints. 
And this took some time. It's a story about how William grew up and his particular role in his family. It wasn't an excuse. Um, it wasn't to take him off the hook. It wasn't to try to blame his wife for not understanding him more or, or not appreciating him more. He wanted to talk with his wife about what goes on inside of him when she's not happy with him and how he doesn't have a, a, a language. He doesn't have a vocabulary. He doesn't have perceptions about what's going on for him when that happens. What he knows how to do, and he knows how to do it very well, and many guys know how to do this, is that they shut down. They feel guilty. They feel angry. Sometimes they feel misunderstood. And they shut down. William doesn't get angry. Some guys might get angry and kind of push back and uh, be critical. He didn't. He just took it on. So as we unwrap, as we unwrapped William's story and I started to hear what his childhood was like, it's a story that involves how much he spends worrying and caring for others. He, he spent so much time worrying and about his wife about his family. It was the opposite of what his wife thought was that he doesn't think about her. He is, he was, um, taught, socialized, influenced to be a caring person, but a certain type of caring person. So as we, did, we talk more about his role, how he started to have to take care of his mom, how he had to take care of his siblings. And the way that he figured that out was he wasn't in a collaborative sort of way. He didn't have time to do that. He just sort of figured out, this is what I think they need, and I'm going to go ahead and do it for them. He also expressed to me a mom that um, whose life was so in so much upheaval because of raising a family, a single mother raising a family, a very smart woman who worked a lot, that she wasn't always appreciative of him. And he swallowed it. He took it in. And when I hear the stories of what he was doing for her, and his siblings, I wanted to stand up and clap because this is a guy that sacrificed a tremendous amount growing up so that he could do what he was doing. He wasn't doing the normal stuff that most kids his age were doing because he was in a parental role. And so he started to kind of share with me um, in an aha experience about 
he's never really processed how he didn't feel appreciated by his mom. He hasn't really processed about his style of, of taking care of others and how he oftentimes needed to make executive decisions. He was super responsible from an early age. Well, my, my client had the courage and he was taking notes and he had the courage to go um, back with his wife and talk with her about his inner world experiences of feeling terrible that, that, that she's not valuing what he's doing. He started to explain how he makes decisions more. He was actually giving her exactly what she wanted is, tell me about what's going on for you. I don't know what's going on for you. Well, he couldn't afford when he was younger to share what was going on for him because he had to be strong. He had to bite the bullet and do what was needed. That was his role. And so as he unpacked this more, he and his wife had some great conversations, from what I understand, about um, how he wants to communicate, how he cares for her, how he appreciates her, and how they're going to deal with when she is disappointed at him, how he's not going to go just internal and shut down. So he created a compassionate voice for himself about how he's reacting to his wife, why he shuts down. And he had a voice that wasn't about excuses, but it was about, I know what my intentions are. I know what I'm feeling in my heart. I know why I make executive decisions. And now that I'm aware of that, I might be able to slow down and do something else. And that's what self-compassion, the practice of self-compassion does. It helps you slow down. It helps you think about your, your options. It goes from a judgmental voice to a voice that has the capacity to be with the other person in, in a much greater compassionate uh, ways that, that have lots of different options to reactions and behaviors. I know I'm running out of time. Uh, Beth is letting me know that. And to tell you the truth, I didn't know if I had 60 minutes to talk about this, but I, I, I have. And, and, um, and I want to, to end with this. I'm, I'm really appreciative of having this opportunity to, to talk with you. Um, I know that I'm learning a lot as I'm sharing this, um, with you. Um, I know that through my own personal practice of, of um, self-compassion that I've become a better man, I've become a better husband, I've become a better father, I've become a better friend, I've become a better colleague, I've become a better therapist. And I look forward to continuing on this journey and I hope that you all will consider just thinking about this as a paradigm or perhaps other words about what is your journey going to be around self-compassion and 
How are you going to help your clients? So thank you for listening. Take care. Be nice to yourself. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.